0: Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director of the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. We are doing a four part series with Father Sergius Halverson, an early partner in developing the intensive program and in servant leadership designed to support parish leaders to serve as a thulos or a servant so that their parishes and extended communities they serve might flourish as the body of Christ. Father Sergius Halverson is Assistant Professor of Homiletics and Rhetoric at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary and Director of the Doctor of Ministry program. His seminary courses include Homiletics, Rhetoric, Christian Education, Orthodox Christian Apologetics, and Faith and Science. So glad to have you back, Father Sergis.
1: Thank you so much, Holly. Our first conversation was incredibly engaging, and I'm really looking forward to moving on to the next section.
0: So last week, we spoke about false authority, If our listeners didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back and I know that we were going to jump in to a scriptural example, not only of false authority that we saw in Pontius Pilate, but how he tried to cover it up by using false humility as well. He serves as a great scriptural example of what authority and humility are not.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He would be, in a sense, the quintessential apophatic example of Christ-like humility and authority. In Pontius Pilate, we see everything that Christ is not. And that's one of the most powerful things about the the passion narratives, because we see this just incredible juxtaposition of two people who are doing entirely different things. We talked last week about how Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving death, but yet in order to promote his own career in order to curry favor with the authorities, both local and beyond. He condemns an innocent man to be beaten, tortured, paraded through the streets, humiliated, and then nailed to a cross to die. The thing that's so devious and so insidious about Pilate is that throughout Jesus's trial, Pilate tries to take the moral high ground, basically trying to argue that, you know, he's doing what's best for the people. Mm. He's trying to keep the peace. It's so interesting because, you know, I've heard a good number of people argue that Pilate wasn't really at fault. You know, he was trapped. He was the governor, so his hands were tied, and he had to basically order Jesus' execution. But I tell you, in my opinion, and if I'm wrong, I, I would really welcome someone to correct me, but in my opinion, that's totally wrong. It's totally and utterly wrong, according to Scripture. Now, according to, you know, I don't know, some manual on politics, you know, perhaps he was right. But according to Scripture, Pilate was absolutely 100% dead wrong. Yes, his job was to keep the peace, but it was also to rule justly. According to Scripture, the king or the one who functions like the king, ultimately it is on him or her to rule justly, to be a just judge. And any time you sacrifice justice, and condemn the innocent because you're trying to keep the peace. If I say, well, I'm going to throw justice out the window because I just have to keep the peace, then I am totally guilty of false humility and false authority. And the bad thing here is that I'm trying to look humble. I'm trying to say, well, you know, it's just my job. I have to do this. And this is why false humility is so dangerous. There are a number of sayings that are really, really hard on false humility,
2: Mm -hmm. because
1: it's so easy to set up an argument to say, well, you know, it's unfortunate, but for the greater good, it must be done.
0: And he washes his hands of it. Exactly.
1: He washes his hands of it as though the blood of an innocent man can simply be washed off with soap and water. Right. It cannot be, right? That stain goes deep. Now, it's interesting to note, we talked last week about King David and the wicked sin that he committed, and also in Jesus's parable, the wicked servant. But you know, both of those guys, they try to hide their sin, but they have no real argument to stand on, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody ever argues that David was just doing his job. I mean, maybe somebody does, but but it's (laughs) it's rare that you hear someone say, well, you know, David had to have an affair with a married woman and he had to kill this guy, you know, who was his great soldier. And nobody argues that the wicked servant was somehow compelled to attack his fellow servant after he had received profound mercy from his master. But Pilate's false humility his sin is cloaked in this insidious mantle of keeping order. Gosh, it's I've been in these situations and it's like, it kills me. But have you ever been in a situation when somebody does something that really hurts another person and then the rationale is, hey, nothing personal. It's just business.
0: Yeah. Oh, nothing personal. Yeah. It must be done. Yeah,
1: exactly. Nothing personal. It's just business. God forgive me if I've ever said that. Uh, I know people have said it to me and boy, it, it's absolutely painful. If I do say that, if that's my kind of go-to, if I'm trying to get out of my own sinfulness by shrouding myself in this murky camouflage of false humility, then I'm basically saying, hey, don't blame me for what I did to hurt you. I had to do it. Like I had no choice. And that's false humility. I mean, false humility and false authority go hand in hand. But in a sense, false humility is way, way worse. If you exercise false authority, you can say, like David the king, you know, he was called out for it and he repented. Doesn't make his sin any less bad, but he had no way out. We don't quite know what happened to Pontius Pilate, at least, you know, scripture doesn't explicitly tell us, but boy, that is a really deep pit to be in if you've wrapped yourself in false humility.
0: Yeah. In developing the Doulos program, many of our contributors felt it was necessary to address what we've coined false humility. It's avoiding duty and personal accountability, appearing humble for personal gain. I think it's so easy to spot what we talked about last week and false authority. We can all recognize somebody who's on an ego trip, someone who assumes to act and be God to other people, not extending mercy as God extends mercy, but extending judgment and authority just because they hold a position of power and they feel it's their right to exercise it. It's easy to spot false authority, but False humility, like you said last week, Father, it's probably more important to work on spotting it in yourself than trying to identify it in others.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: I was just going to ask you about some other scriptural references you shared about Pontius Pilate and how he exercised both false authority and false humility. What are some other examples that we find in Scripture around this false humility, Uh, avoiding personal duty and accountability, oftentimes trying to appear humble for personal gain?
1: So one of the examples of humility would be Moses, the great prophet Moses, when God first asks him or commands him, say, look, I've I've chosen you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, that they may serve me, right? We talked about that earlier. Moses comes up with several pretty good reasons why he may not be the best pick. Ultimately, Moses argues, look, Lord, I'm not fit for this ministry. I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. But then God assures Moses, basically saying, look, that's okay. Okay because literally this is you know Exodus uh, uh, chapter four, verses 10 and 12, God says, go, I will be your mouth and I will teach you what to speak. What more could you ask? Moses gives every excuse and God says, don't worry, I got you covered. Basically, I'm gonna be doing the work, you just go stand there as a witness. And all this time, Moses' arguments have been very pious and humble-sounding, right? But finally, at the very end, you know, Exodus uh, chapter 4, verse 13, right? After God said, look, I'll take care of it. I'll do the heavy lifting. You just be the witness. Finally, the truth spills out. Moses says, oh, my Lord, I pray, send someone else. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. well, 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 at least he's not trying to be false anymore.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Finally, finally, his, his false humility has been exposed, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, those arguments were kind of bogus. Oh, Lord, I pray send someone else. Now, we don't want to psychologize Moses too much. At a certain level, the fact that God chose someone who was slow of speech and not a particularly skilled orator, it falls right in line with that wonderful account that St. Paul gives where he three times he says, I, I besought the Lord would remove from me this thorn in the flesh, but God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Right. Right? This idea that God always chooses those who are weak so that he might humble those who are powerful. I think this is a nice example of this idea of, of false humility. Just because you can put a nice pious spin on why maybe you're not the right person doesn't mean that God may be may have work for you to do again now I mean, let me turn it around it's on me right how am I perhaps using nice pious excuses to explain away why I'm not actually doing God's work oh I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't have enough followers on Facebook you know I haven't published enough articles, etc et etc cetera, et etc cetera, et cetera. I can make arguments till the cows come home for why I might not be doing something, but in the end of the day it's probably false humility. Because if God is calling me to do something in faith, I should trust that he knows what he's doing. If he calls me to do it, then I should say, all right, here am I, Lord. I will go to the best of my ability.
0: Right. I'm also thinking of the example we find in Luke about the parable of the great dinner. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I got to go out and see it. I pray, have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. I pray you have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come.
2: You know, one of the concrete ways that false humility can play out is when There's a particular job that needs to be done. There's a particular responsibility that the community needs someone to take on because as the body of Christ, there's something that we need to do to fulfill God's commandment to love and care for the neighbor. You know, people will say... They'll say, hey, you know, you have these skills, and we really think that you would be the best person to do this. At some level, you know, everyone likes that kind of praise. Everyone likes to be told that they have the right stuff, that they're qualified to do some important work. But then where false humility can kick in is that while I might love to have that affirmation, at the same time, I might say, well, you know, I like the affirmation, but I really don't want to take on the responsibility, if I take on the responsibility, if I'm the one in charge, then inevitably I'm going to take some heat for something that doesn't go right, or there's going to be the burden that I actually have to bear and get this thing done. So false humility kicks in because then I say, well, you know, thanks guys, but really I'm not the right guy to do this. And then I can couch that excuse in all sorts of nice, pious disguises. I don't want to take up the cross and be crucified what I would like everyone to do is say, hey, you're the right guy for this, and then right there I would stop and say, well, no, but you see, I'm, I'm not worthy, therefore I don't have to do it. False humility raises its ugly head again. It becomes that excuse for why I opt out of doing the command that God has given to God's people.
0: Right. We find in Luke, then the householder in anger said to a servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. The table is set, Right. yet we have these excuses. And in all humility, please excuse me. I've just bought a house. I've just bought oxen, a field. I've just gotten married. Those sound like such righteous, holy, humble excuses, Sure. (laughs) But, but the work is to be done. But in the end,
1: they are excuses. And they're shrouded in false humility. That's the problem. Because ultimately, what's so devious about false humility is that I can fool myself. I can actually fool myself into thinking that I'm being quite pious and quite obedient, when in fact, I'm just serving myself. And this is why you know, false humility and false authority are so closely related.
0: Right, right. I think it's important to really wrestle with this notion of avoiding conflict. I think it's easy for us as Christians to sometimes confuse avoiding conflict with humility, not having the important conversation because you're afraid that it might produce some sort of conflict. For example, if you're elected to serve on a parish council, you have a duty and responsibility to steward the resources of the church. There might be somebody on the board who feels strongly about something and may think differently than you, but keeping the peace, staying silent for the sake of uncomfortable conversations isn't the same as being humble. Could you say a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Well, you, uh, you know, your, your words pierce directly through my heart. <laughs> this, is, this is a really serious temptation that I face all the time that idea like, oh, well, I'm just going to try to keep the peace. I don't want to raise a ruckus. I don't want to get someone mad at me. But one of the ways that we might stop ourselves in our tracks and say, well, I can't even begin to do this work, or I can't even begin to set out on this task because I'm not up for it or whatever. And, and then I might you know, make an argument in false humility for why I shouldn't do it. One of the reasons that I do that is because I'm trying to jump from point A to point Z all at once. In the context you talked about, having the hard discussions, confronting someone about, you know, a decision that has to be made, there are basically two problems. One would be to say, oh gosh, I can't convince this person about anything. I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to be falsely humble and say nothing. That's a problem. On the other hand, it's just as problematic if I say, okay, I'm going to grab this person by the neck and I'm going to force them to see things my way, right? (laughs) That's equally problematic. However, say a prayer, make the sign of the cross, pray that God would give us, you know, strength and wisdom, and then just take the first step. Just take the first step in opening the discussion. You don't have to have all, you, know, you don't have to have the full difficult discussion all at one sitting, right? Right, um, right, So if you just take the first step, for example, if you needed to have a difficult discussion with someone, you could say, hey, Joe, we were talking about XYZ the other day, and I was wondering if maybe you'd have a, time, have a chance to sit down and talk with me about this, Right, right. right. Very unthreatening, right? But at least you've started. Right. And then Joe might say, Oh, sure, you know, let and then you can do it just one step at a time, this idea of building consensus. Ultimately, when we make decisions in the church, we want to build consensus. We want to strengthen the body of Christ. Right. Whether I sit on the sidelines shrouded in my dark camouflage cloak of false humility, or whether I jump in with this false authority and say, Oh, I'm gonna force these guys to do what I want my way or the highway, both of those are just as destructive to the unity of the body of Christ.
0: Right. Even in having some of those difficult conversations, if you're inspired by what would God have us do in this context, I would be remiss in my duties and my accountability to this particular parish, to this parish council here. If I didn't raise concerns with respect to what would God have us do, I would like to ask a few questions, not for the sake of conflict itself, but for the sake of having the Lord search us and find a path forward. What would he have us do and to find that consensus together?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, that's a brilliant and such an important thing you just said, Holly, because that is a fantastic way to begin having the difficult discussion is to ask the other person, how how do you see God's will in this situation? Mm -hmm. You know, help me to understand how you see it. What you do is you turn the discussion from it's my opinion versus your opinion to now we're both opening up scripture and we're saying, okay, what does the Lord command? Exactly. What are the examples in scripture that we see of how people might decide in this? Even if we end up not agreeing, at the end of the day, we've still benefited because we've spent some time studying scripture together.
0: Together, exactly. We
1: should pray that every discussion, every engagement we had, even the difficult ones, would ultimately strengthen the bonds of love and trust and communion. You know, we're going to get to this in a later segment. But part of that is having the courage to be vulnerable, to put your idea before someone else, to make your case and be willing to listen. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. Mm you know, Mm -hmm. rather than just barging in and saying, hey, look, I am the hands-down expert in this, nobody else knows anything, so listen to me, and everyone can just pay, pray, and obey. I mean, that's a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. But if I say, look, here's why I think this is what we should do, or here's why I think this is a decision we should take, and based on Jesus' teaching here, and based on these different stories from Scripture, that puts the focus on discerning the will of God, discerning the will of God as we exegete the Scripture, rather than, okay, what's my way, what's your way, Because it's not about my way or your way. It's ultimately about discerning
0: God's will, right? Exactly, exactly. We can only know it if we open up scripture together and submit to it together. You know, another thing too, that is really important to remember
1: about false humility and why it's so insidious is that it can even lead me to think that I'm so sinful, I'm so wretched, that even God cannot forgive me. This would be the sin of Judas. Betraying Jesus was no question. There was a sin. You know, he betrayed an innocent man. But Peter did the same thing in a sense, slightly different, but Peter denied Christ three times. But Judas's ultimate sin was that in his false humility, he decided that his sin was so bad that God couldn't forgive him.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So in the end, we could say that false humility is, is actually pride, it's naked pride. Pride is me setting myself up as judge of others and judge of myself when it is God alone who judges. There's another factor to that false humility that can be just catastrophically destructive to the human person. Uh, not only in the way I might treat others, or I'm, I might ignore others, like, oh, well, you know, I can't go and visit that person in the hospital because I don't know what to say. Or, you know, I, I can't, I can't write that person a note just saying hello, um, because I'm not a good writer. You know, I can think of all sorts of different excuses for why I'm not qualified to do this. But at the end of the day, I'm just serving myself. Right. And then even worse, there's always that temptation to think, I'm so bad, I'm so wicked, I'm so broken, that surely God can't use me. But that's just, it's total pride. Because, you know, who am I to say that?
0: I'm not the master. Right. Essentially, it sounds like false humility really is false authority cloaked in piety. There you
1: go. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Poor Judas. I'm thinking of the other example of when the woman poured out oil onto Christ's feet and Judas is there leaning back, observing all this, this precious ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor.
1: Exactly. We're told that he was a thief. He kept the money box and he would help himself. He's like, hey, wait a minute. Why should we waste this opportunity for profit? You're going to make something sound all pious and nice, but in fact, you're setting up an argument to benefit yourself that's right. through your own clandestine action. Judas wasn't publicly stealing the money. He was privately doing that. But if he could make it sound all pious, look, we're going to keep her from busting open the other bottle so we can <laughs> sell it, right? Um, mm. you know, again, the point is he wants to serve himself. But the thing I think that's important when I think about this, the idea is that false humility isn't simply bad for others, it's bad for me. It is soul destroying. True Christ-like humility is truly the only way to live honestly, to live in a way that is truly pleasing to God and in a way that allows us to live as God created us to live.
0: Yeah, that's a great segue into next week's podcast. Father, is there anything else that you would recommend in trying to explore and to be accountable to the false humility that we allow to be pervasive in our lives?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There are a few things that one could do. The first thing would be, we always have to make decisions, right? I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do that. The first question is, if I'm deliberating, should I do this? Should I do that? As I'm making that deliberation, I think one of the questions would be, which of these decisions will allow me to serve my neighbor better? If I'm ultimately going to choose the one that's easier for me, and less good for the neighbor, then I would say that's a kind of a, a yellow flag, if not a full-on red flag, mm-hmm. no matter how pious my argument might sound. As Jesus says, fundamental commandments of Scripture are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And on these commandments hang all along the prophets. So as I'm deliberating, what shall I do? Shall I do this, or shall I do that? And if I have to choose one or the other, the question would be, which one am I able to better serve the neighbor and glorify God. That would be the first thing. The second thing would be to keep in mind that if God calls me to do something hard, there will be grace. It's not that I have to do it on my own. To set out to do something, if I'm convinced that, okay, this is truly going to glorify God and is truly going to be an expression of love for my neighbor, first of all, set out to do it with confidence that God will give me the grace to do it even if it seems difficult, even if it seems impossible, but then the other thing is to know that if it turns out that I was mistaken, that whoops, maybe I maybe I didn't discern that one correctly, I can always repent, mm-hmm. okay. right? If you if you choose the harder option, I don't know. It's not like we're in some adventure movie where it's like, okay, will you you know rappel down the cliff or go across the rickety <laughs> bridge? You know, like like an Indiana Jones movie where you know you're committed to one or the other, and if you do one, you'll die. It's very rare that we make when we make decisions that we cannot repent and turn and modify. So I think that would be the other thing to keep in mind as well, is that to choose to serve the neighbor, to say, look, I'm not going to try to cloak myself uh, in false humility, some sort of pious argument for why I'm not good enough or I'm not the one to do this. I'm going to take this risk, praying that God will give me the grace, and also knowing, should it turn out that I miscalculated, I can always repent. And that's really helpful in a way that allows me to at least take the first step. I think sometimes we use false humility to like rule ourselves out of a particular location or work or service because we're looking to the very end. Let's say you feel that maybe God is calling you to work collaboratively with the churches in your area to build a you know a care facility for the aged and the infirm. And that's a huge job, right? I'm thinking about my brothers and sisters in Christ in, in New England who've done that. But you don't do that at all at once. You have to do it in steps. And so if you start out to do it, you can constantly check, is this working? Do we have the resources to do this? And if it's not God's will, he'll show you, he'll show you. And and there's no sin in having tried to do something that you think, ah, oh, I'm not sure if I have the ability to do this. And then just say, okay, well, I can, I can modify. Yeah.
0: So last week we discussed false authority, Today we've discussed some examples around false humility. And next week, I hope our listeners join us as we begin to explore Christ-like humility and Christ-like authority in our third and fourth session together.